Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, my name is Michael Waits from ATP Stories, and I am talking to Casper Bo Jensen. Casper is the founder and CEO of Chilindo. And I'll say this, if you're in Southeast Asia and you haven't heard of Chilindo, you're probably under a rock because everybody else has. Anyway, how are you, Casper Bo? I'm great. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. Um, where are you from originally? I'm written from Denmark. I moved to Thailand about uh, four and a half years ago. That's it. So can you tell me this? What is it about Denmark that makes its entrepreneurs so creative and in the end so successful? Like there seems to be like a little Danish mafia in Bangkok in particular that just seems to nail everything. Is there something <laughs> specific about the country? Like what's going on there? I'm not sure actually what I should answer to that. I don't know either. I just thought about it. I wasn't even sure I I was going to ask you that. (laughs) I don't think even, I don't even think we can answer that. Uh, Fair enough. I'm honestly not sure what the, what what the, what the trick is there. I guess uh, fighting, uh, trying to make startups in a country with five millions makes you a little bit more sharp, I guess. So were you building stuff before you came to Bangkok? Like what's the background there? What were you doing before you came here four and a half years ago? It's not that long ago actually. No, it's not that long ago. Uh, it's actually less than four and a half years. Um, I've been doing e-commerce more or less all my life. Uh, started law and economics when I was younger and uh, started my first company in 2002, uh, importing from Taiwan. And then I moved on. It became winter and no one was buying my golf trolleys uh, that I was importing. And then I started selling them on uh, an eBay-like site in Denmark at the time and uh, it turned out I got the same price as when I was wholesaling them, and uh, basically I started uh, selling online uh, from yeah from back there, and uh, moved on to be the biggest seller on uh, QXL in Denmark, and then Norway, and then Sweden, um, and then launched actually my own auction site in Denmark back in 2007, and uh, as many other great entrepreneurs when the when bust in 2009. Uh, so yeah, so that's the, uh, that's the short story. And then, uh, a few years of struggle after you go bust. And then I, I took a job for one year for a Norwegian company. And so I tried to be an employee for one year. And after one year, I kind of figured that uh, that was not me. Uh, and then I uh, had some friends in Bangkok and I, one day I, packed a bag and uh, jumped on a plane and uh, tried to see what was out here. So tell me about this though. So you're not, you're an entrepreneur for most of your life and probably not that long, six, seven years, whatever it is, right? And then you go take a job as an employee. The reason why I ask is because I worked in big companies for 20 something years and I would guess that today I am completely unemployable and not because I don't know anything and not because I don't work hard, but because I just cannot work in that environment. I just cannot do it. I think I'd get there and lose my mind. And I'm just wondering what it was it like for you after running your own shop for so long? And doing well to then go work at a company. Like, what was that like? It was, I probably had the most free job in the world. I was uh, managing a startup in Denmark and uh, I had some very great bosses that asked very few questions. <laughs> but so that was also why I realized that all the frustrations that gave me was, uh, I probably couldn't find a job then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, it was, uh, it was good in many ways. I learned a lot uh, for that year. Uh, I learned a lot about how a company of a bigger size work. Uh, I also learned for myself that I'm, 
I'm very bad in uh, having to get other people's approval on how to do things. Right. Uh, and I end up spending way too much energy focused on why I didn't get it my way uh, instead of just uh, kind of falling in line. I think that's one of my biggest weaknesses is the ability to to fall in line when I don't agree with other people on how to do things. Yeah, I know what that's like. And I'm not, uh, and I'm, not I'm not sure it's helped me a lot over time actually but, <laughs> but I completely understand it. I think if if you're an employee it doesn't help you that much. Uh, <laughs> you, you need to be able to fall in line at least uh, once in a while uh, when you're an entrepreneur at, at least when you get successful uh, people tend to uh, accept uh, your opinions more than uh, when you're less successful. <laughs> so you said that there were a lot of startups or a lot of companies that went bust in 2009. Was this a result of just the overall global financial crisis or is there something specific that was going on at the time in your business? No, that was the overall global finance crisis we had. I I ran a, a, a for Denmark and the size in Denmark, a good business. I think we were at... 13, 14 million dollars in annual sales and That's big. we're doing, we're doing pretty decent. And we had actually term sheet in August, you know, in July 2008 and decided to wait. And then end of August 2008, all the banks started crashing and uh, the term sheet that was on the table was no longer a term sheet and the banks started to, to minimize. It was a tough time. The business actually, obviously the business suffered a bit from it, but fundamentally it had nothing to do with the, with the business itself, right? The business itself. It was, it was, it was just bad timing, uh, bad timing. I was, I owned it 100% or, or my brother had some in it, so we didn't have any investors. So we didn't have any fallbacks. So I think that's, that's important uh, to have investors that can support you, not only mentally, but also financially when, Things get tough. Yeah. So, what else did you learn from that? Just being a single proprietor, really, it's just you and your brother with a little piece of it. Besides the fact that, like, good investors matter, what what else was there in that business that now you can think about when you're running Chilindo? Because I want to talk about that. I think there's a story there too. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious about what that experience is like and how that drives the way you run stuff that you do today. I think today things are just different. I think when we started out, it was great to have the experience of running a company before. I think, uh, there, there was so many things that you could, that you kind of, uh, already knew or at least had an answer to is the first time you start up a business is just so incredibly hard. And I think most people underestimate how much time you can spend on small things like just who collects the garbage, right? I mean, yeah. who cleans the office? I mean, who who does this? Who does that? All kinds of tiny, small things that, that you have to figure out the first time you do a business. And the next time you do a business, you kind of have more things on, on autopilot or at least you have something to fall back to. You have some learnings. And so I think that's the key when you when you do, so you do business later on. I also think, I mean, the whole uh, the whole bankruptcy and, and, and going down i think uh, it's it's an in, invaluable lesson as well you learn a lot on how to run a business and you learn to focus on different things and you also figure out what what's because all businesses get tough at, at some points right and and then it's good to know how to handle the handle the situation you can you can teach people how to sail a boat and every uh, 
in in crazy storms, but it's only when you try that you actually know what to do. Yeah, it's a great analogy, actually, right? And, and I always say, like, <clears throat> you can read about how to drive a car. You can just get behind the wheel and drive it. And then the only yeah. way I figured out is really just to get behind the wheel and drive it. And at some point, you will have an accident. And the idea is, what do you do? How do you recover from that? And yeah. that's where all the learning takes place. Like when everything is easy and I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today and they were like, yeah, this part of my life was hard and I was jealous of people that had it easier. And I said, really? I even, even back when I was a kid, right, we were super poor and it meant that we had to be really resilient and resourceful. Mm-hmm. And I never was jealous of wealth because it just made me figure out, okay, how am I going to stop being like this? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like how yeah. am I going to get yeah, to a point sure. where I can get resources so I don't have to be – I don't have to be worrying about it. And then once you understand resourcefulness, it's like every other problem seems easier, not easy, but easier in general. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. It's like once you you fail at something, you understand like how to learn from that. And that's really powerful. For sure. For sure. For sure. And then there's a, yeah, it's, 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 it's a key instrument in, in, in Cylindro for sure was, uh, was all the learning and uh, prior experiences in Denmark. So tell me, you get on a plane, you come to Bangkok, you have a few friends that live here. Are they still here, by the way? Yeah, for sure, for sure. They're all still here. They're all still here. <laughs> yeah, I came here. I came here. Uh, it's actually funny because uh, I came here based on... I obviously had a lot of uh, experience working in China, but I'm not too big a fan of living in China. So for that reason, Thailand seemed like a good place. It seemed like a good place to hire foreigners because there was a lot of foreigners here. And yep. I had one thing when I when I arrived here that I should I, I want to run my business from Thailand, but I never ever want to do business inside Thailand. I guess I missed big time out on that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so yeah, I came here and I had uh, I had some business that I kept running. Uh, I actually took a few months off, um, traveled a bit, and came to Bangkok. And then once I came to Bangkok and found my apartment. I, I think it was less than a few weeks after we were going on starting to limbo. And what was the idea? Because you said you had built a um, an auction style business in Denmark, but it feels to yeah. me like the Chilindo style auction business is very different. I don't think people it, understand. It was actually it, but... no, it was actually similar uh, in in many ways. I think what triggered it was I arrived in in Bangkok and I was uh, all new here and. We were uh, having beers and talking about rocket internet and how much they were investing right. and how and and I was kind of sitting there and saying, I mean, why would why would Thai people buy there? I mean, wh- why would that move people online? I mean, it's just to one of the things that I've never never gotten about e-commerce is when people wanna want people to shop online to save money because it's it's kind of like. First of all, it's not cheap to run e-commerce. It's very right. expensive. Right. Often, it's cheaper to build a shop, right? And 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 secondly, if you're only selling branded products and and you end up in the search result because you're cheap, it's you're relying too much on the on the physical stores. Uh, so you kind of need to have them around. So you're just piggybacking on them, and then uh, and and I think that's where the auction model comes in. It's it's interesting, it's new, it's engagement, and it's something that you just cannot do offline. I mean, I think most of the great online products is products that cannot be copied offline. And I think uh, that's where I like the auction model. It, it, it gets people to, to start uh, to start playing rather than, uh, than shopping for a specific product. 
Yeah, so can you just run through for me and for people that are listening, like how exactly, like what's the whole process? If you can say, like how does Chilindo work? Right, because there used to be, you know, eBay was very famous for building an auction business in the United States. This was 20 years ago, right? But there was always like a minimum price, and that minimum price was a reasonable price. In other words, yeah. if you expected the thing to trade around $15, maybe the price would start at $12 or $10, right? Yeah, so, so I mean, that's actually one of the funniest things. And, and uh, eBay has always been known for doing auctions. And if there's one thing that, in my opinion, eBay has never done, is actually auctions. Yeah, that's the point I was trying to make, is that it wasn't <laughs> yeah. really an auction per se, right? That's no. the point I wanted to make. So yeah. please go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, eBay is, is nothing but auction. It's, it's either the starting price or it's uh, yeah minimum price. or uh, And and if if anyone, a lot of people have tried to go to an, an offline auction, of whether it's uh, old uh, goods or paintings or whatever most of these items they run successfully when they start from nothing and people are bidding uh, when they when the auctioneer sitting there with his hammer and saying and we have to start at one million then uh, everyone gets quiet right because the one million or the 10 euros or whatever it tells everyone that if you pay more than that you're paying me more than i'm willing to pay more than i'm willing to sell for right so just think, wait just wait right like that was the thing that never made sense about a real auction okay we're going to start at a million bucks Okay, yeah. fine. I'm waiting until someone comes out, and then I'm just going to pay a million bucks. That you told me the price already. Yes, so so it's it's kind of fixed price already. It will work on certain items if you have, but then again, on the items it will work. You would not need the million bucks as starting price because it will go over anyway, right? right. So it's it, it, it's 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 a trigger, and I think one of the things that consumers fear the most is getting a bad deal, right? We we all know it. We go down to the supermarket or wherever we buy a. Let's say a new TV to so take a big item. We go into Big C, we see this 15 screen, uh, screen TV, and we pay, I don't know, what 10,000 baht or whatever they cost today. And we're very excited about this deal. We're very happy. We made a killer deal, and, and that's how we feel. And if we later that day or the next day walk into Tesco and it's 500 baht cheaper, right, we're we feel so bad right yeah. but if it's 500 baht more expensive than tesco we just feel even greater right and and the 500 baht doesn't really matter it's just our whole feeling about this purchase get killed right and i think when 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 you do auctions like that you just kills uh, people's spirit it's actually one of the trickiest thing about running auctions for us as well is that once you win the product, we will have more auctions with the same product. Right. But and in and in the beginning, we would keep showing you that item because many people would buy more of the same item. But we stopped doing that because there was just too a high chance that you would see another auction run out a few baht cheaper, and now suddenly you would not be happy with your first purchase. So today, the algorithm is like: if you win an item, you won't see that item again until you've actually received your product, and then we'll wait a few weeks or at least some days before we show it to you again. Just to make sure that you're happy with your purchase. But there's a real there's a real idea, right, in financial markets and in all markets that that the market sets the price. Yes. Um, and this is a disappear. Sorry, go ahead. I interrupted you. No, 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 no. Talk, talk. talk. And I was going to say, in the case of Chilindo, it sounds like actually the market does set the price. You start everything at what one bot, just so it has some price, yeah. Actually, it starts at zero. If no zero. one bids, fair just, enough. Okay, so I mean, no one bids I mean, zero, the, the yeah. first bid is one bar, right? So if if no one really wants to bid, then the auction just ends without any bids, right? So first bid is always one bar. Um, 
yeah, the market sets the price. You can say we have kind of our, our own market price setting on Chilindo as well, because on some items, we end up with actually selling much, much cheaper than the market, simply because we're pushing out so much volume. It's, it's a fundamental of, it actually comes from my days on selling on eBay similar sites. Uh, let's just call it eBay was not eBay, but yep. similar sites. Because everyone in there was setting a minimum price or uh, starting price or whatever. And I was, all, I was the only one starting at, at, at one or zero or whatever we call it. And the biggest challenge I found back then was that it will never, ever work in a marketplace model. Because in a marketplace model, and, and that's eBay's problem as well, you the seller does not control the supply or the demand. When prices go high, other people will start selling the same product or they'll start putting in fixed prices and kind of lower the, the, the bar for what people should be bidding. Where in, on Chilindo, it's, it's, everything is controlled by us, right? So we control the supply and we obviously know the demand uh, the second we start an auction. Right? So this so is it's all about supply and demand. Yeah, but this is actually really interesting. So in a marketplace model, right? It mm-hmm. means that <clears throat> I'm just going to pick something, right? So if, if it's a pair of sneakers that's branded, I can go to a supplier and buy it. You can go to a supplier and buy it. And we're just, it's a race to the bottom to see like who can, who can, who can withstand selling at the best price. Yes. To a certain extent. But if you own the product and if it's not branded, maybe it's better. But even if it is, if you own that product, you're indifferent. Sure. It's your price. For sure. I mean, but, but even on the branded products, if, if we take it in a marketplace model, I mean, uh, let's say you're sitting on eBay, you're selling these, uh, Nike shoes, right? Yep. You bought them off the wholesaler for 50 euros and now people going crazy and they're paying a hundred euros. Yep. There's the most people out here in this world, they copy other people. So they'll go in and say, wow, he's getting a hundred euros every time. I can also buy them for Correct. 50 euros somewhere. Right. So he puts them on. And he's a pussy, so he's going to put them on a fixed price of 75 euros, right? Yep. Yep. All is going to happen. He's going to sell absolutely zero shoes, but your auctions will now longer, no longer go above 75 because he set the top price, right? Where before the top price was the rep retail price that was 200 or 300 euros, yep. right? Yep. So people were happy with 100. Now they only want to pay 70. He has already bought 100 pairs, so he sits back and says, this is weird. Why am I not selling anything? And he's not getting... It's because he's not running an auction. So he drops the price to 60 euros, still yep. not selling anything. All your auctions now ending at 58 euros. Then he drops this to 50 just to get rid of them, what he paid for. Your auctions is now running at 45 euros. And at some point, he's going to drop the price even below what he paid for it. Because each marketplace has their own kind of pricing. There's market pricing, and then there's also local pricing, right? So there will always be a local pricing on eBay, same as there will be a local pricing at uh, gateway or any other shopping mall, there will be some kind of local pricing. If one guy at the door suddenly starts selling a product very cheap, everyone else has to follow where it might be three times more expensive than another shopping mall. Right? So, so you, it's all about pricing. Right? right but you, you just made a really interesting point about pricing, right? So if you're doing an auction and you're, you're paying 50 and then the price gets bids up to a hundred because it's still better than a retail price, people still have that feeling. And that feeling actually is really important. You talked about it earlier where they feel like they're getting a deal. Yes. But if that guy then, you said, he's a pussy. I don't disagree with you, actually. And I love the terminology <laughs> because he is, right? All he's doing is looking at you and saying, okay, that guy took the risk. He set the market price. I'm just going to sell cheaper. But what you said was really interesting. He's not going to sell anything. No. Nope. But why is that? Tell me that part about it because that's interesting to me. Why does that guy sell nothing but you still get the sales because people want the fun of the bidding? Like, Is it just the experience of the auction? Why is that guy selling think- nothing? 
I don't know. I learned it. The, I, I learned it the hard way when I was. Uh, I think it was one or two times that that I was a pussy when I was selling uh, online, and I, I tried. I, I tried to put it up at fixed price, and we would just sell nothing. And then the next week, I would be. Uh, Tired of having it in stock, and I would put it on auction, and somebody will sell it. Sometimes, actually, at a higher price. I think, I think it's because people are so concerned about making a good deal, and the second that we're telling them that I'm willing to sell for this, subconsciously, it's not a good deal anymore. I mean, that's why everyone wants to haggle at the night market. And if the guy says 250 baht, you're going to offer him 200 baht. Had he said 350 baht, you're going to offer him 300 baht. You would have been equally happy. That's probably why the street sellers start so incredibly high when you want to buy a copy T-shirt or something. Right. Just because it doesn't really matter how low you go. I mean, they can go all the way to 100 baht. But, hey, if a guy is happy at 500, then why go all the way to 100, right? So it's I think we're all looking to make that good deal and then... And, and if someone just tells us the price and, and we accept that it, it's not really a good deal. I think you make – that's actually a fabulous idea. So here's the thing. When I first started traveling in Asia, we would go to you know cities like Korea or Jakarta or wherever. And you're right. We'd always go to the market. <laughs> and you know we'd pay – I'm going to pick a price. I don't remember what it was. But let's just call it like 10,000 Korean won, right? And <clears throat> we knew that wasn't the real price. And we'd bid it down. And we were haggling literally over pennies. Yeah. <laughs> but we'd walk away. You know this because you've done it. But we'd walk away and just go, nah, it's okay. You know, my price is a thousand one. I got a great. That would be a great deal. But a thousand and one one, I'm not willing to pay. Yeah. Right. Which is so stupid. And you're right. It's not about the money. It's about the deal. And yet, the worst thing was when we went back to Tokyo, where we lived, we would then go into Big Camera, which was like a fixed price store, and start to haggle. <laughs> Because we knew, like, that was just the fixed price that they choose. We knew that there was margin, and we want to take away some of the margin. And I guess that that's what you're saying, is that once you know that, it's so hard to shop any other way. For sure, right? I mean, people love, people all brag about making a good deal, right? It's whether you're selling a house or buying a car or whatever. Everyone feels that they made a good deal, and that's the key. And most people... As I normally tell my buyers, you can never make the optimal deal. You, I mean, if you're going for the lowest price, you'll never buy anything, right? right so right. you cannot haggle all the time, uh, but you need to actually buy something as well. But in private life, most of the things we buy, we actually don't need. And that's the funny thing. I mean, most of our buyings, if you look at yourself or if you look at your friends, I mean, most people, when they buy a new TV or, I don't know, a washing machine or oven or whatever it is, a big appliance, they search the entire market. They find where the cheapest price is and they go drive across town to save 500 baht. And the second they're done, they're going to go down and sit on a bar and have a beer with their friends. And they wouldn't <laughs> even check the price before they sit down, right? So it's, 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 it's we're irrational human. Every human being is irrational, right? So it's, it's creating the sense of you making a good deal. And, and I think, especially for consumable consumer products we always have to remember that the most common decision to make is not to buy anything and, and that's what most humans do all the time right I mean because we end up I mean I've been wanting a new TV for a long time but still haven't bought one because it's just oh, it's just a headache to look at all these different TVs that's another part of the Chilindo business model is that we have very limited amount of SKUs and we have tried to increase the amount of SKUs but we always only have like one TV or maybe two TVs. 
because it's just so much easier. There's this 50-inch TV, you want it or you don't, right? Right. Where when you go down to big seat, it's 50 of them, right? And yeah. you have to suddenly start to become a TV expert to figure out what to buy, right? Because why am I, should I take, and that's why people end up taking the, nah, I don't want the cheapest one, I don't want the most, I'll take the middle one, or they just go for the cheapest one, right? That's what I normally say. I mean, when I go to a shopping mall, I mean, I don't necessarily need to buy with discount, but when I'm buying clothes for myself or for my kids or whatever it is I'm buying, I always go straight to the discount aisle where it says 50% off. Right. Simply because there's less to choose from. It's much easier to make a decision. When you walk into Central World, if you're not looking for discount, there's just so many choices that you're going to end up not buying anything. right? But if right. you go straight to the line where it says 50% off, well, then suddenly there's only two pairs of shoes in your size, and you only have two choices to make, one choice to make. Right? right. I mean, you're also eliminating the discovery problem, right? A lot of people talk about how do I discover the products that I want, and basically what you're saying is you want this or not. There's no other choice. Yeah. And if you don't want it, that's fine too, but there's no other choice. You're going to buy this 50-inch television set or you're not going to buy it. We're happy either way. I mean, obviously you're happier yeah. if they buy it, but there's no discovery problem. I've had this discussion with people about let's just say other marketplaces, online marketplaces. And I say, you guys have a product discovery problem. And they said to me, and I thought this was awesome. They said this in public too. They said, we don't have a discovery problem. We have 2000 products. You can find anything you want. And I just looked at the guy and I said, exactly. <laughs> That's the fucking problem. Excuse me. That's the problem. It's like, there are 2 million products there. You can't yeah. find anything. Exactly, right? And that's why most retail stores these days, they go for discount, right? It's, it's too limited. It's why we have just had 11.11 a few days ago. Yep. I mean, then everyone goes crazy because now they save money. And, and, and all retailers are trying to build up these days. I actually heard that Amazon is trying to get rid of these days because it's, it's too tough to handle, right? And you give a bad customer experience. And some of my staff was pushing me as well. Shouldn't we do something? It's 11.11 and Black Friday is coming up and it's going to be 12.12, we should do something. I said, we no. already we already done it. We do it 362 days a year. Yeah. The other guys they do it three days a year, right? So we've already done it. We don't have to do it. We cannot we cannot do it one more time. Right? We do it every day. Right? So are you? I are you? Are you? Did I just hear that you're closed three days a year? <laughs> I'm not closed, but you can say I'm. I'm <laughs> I mean, if you look at our revenue on 11-11, it was. The oh, same as it was on ten eleven. I yeah. mean, it's exactly the same. But uh, I'm sure my revenue uh, went up on twelfth, and it's going to go up the next, probably the next one and a half week. It's going to go up until we start hitting Black Friday, and then it's going to go stable again. And once we're once we're above, uh, past Black Friday, it's going to go up again because every everyone else is blowing all their marketing budget uh, just before these days. It's like December twenty five. It's amazing because everyone is out of budget. So. We're ready to uh, – then we can acquire users at a lower cost. Yeah, sorry. My head's spinning a little bit as I learn more and more about this business. Because the other thing you're saying is you almost have this implicit – and actually it's not implicit. It's an explicit trust of the market mechanism to ensure that the products that people actually really want, they'll bid on. And that people will find out that there's an auction going on and they'll say, at two bot, it's too cheap. I'll pay three. Someone goes, three. I cannot let somebody else get that thing. I'm paying four. And by the time they're done, it's 472 bought, which is a fair price because the market's decided that that's the right price. And that as it goes higher, people start to realize that it's moving away from them and they start mm -hmm. doing what we call in the financial markets is they start reaching. And once they start sure. reaching, you make money. For sure. And I think, I think that's one of the tricks of starting at one bar is that 
you actually you spike a dream, right? Yeah, you hope. So many products we want, right? So when you see an iPhone, we don't sell iPhones, but we could. But if you see an iPhone at one dollar, you're like, hey, I want an, an iPhone. Is actually the best would be the best auction product in the world because yeah. everyone wants to buy an iPhone. Even the most hardcore Android people would buy, would buy an iPhone at the right price. Sure, right? they just hack so it. They iPhone. just hack it and install Android on it. But. <laughs> Yeah, sure, but but it's, it's it's one of these products that everyone has a price of what they're willing to pay. Sure. So so that's a great auction product because you come in, you see no one bid. Okay, I'll bid fifty dollars, right? Another guy comes in, willing to bid a hundred dollars, and then the guy comes in that actually wants the product and he's willing to pay uh, five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, whatever mm-hmm. the right price is for the product. But for other products, like uh, let's say you go to my uh, the site and you see a pair of. Uh, I don't know, women's slippers in size 36, right? I mean, even if I would sell them to you for one bar, you wouldn't buy them because nope. you have no idea what to use them for. I'm not interested. Yeah, exactly, right? So so the best products on the auction platform is products where a big part of people actually want to want to buy because then we can reach the right price. But as we grow, as we scale up and have more users online, I mean, at this point in time, we have... I mean, even at night, we have even at 5 a.m. in the morning, we will have 1,500 people sitting and looking at the site. I mean, I think right now it's probably somewhere between six and 10,000 people that are sitting on the site. So what we're doing now is more filtering away what do we think you want. And we can get more and more specific in what we're selling because there's so many eyeballs. So it's just figuring out what to show to who. So I'm presuming... Now that you've been in business for what, three years, four years? I don't remember the exact time frame, but whatever it is that you have a data, right? That you're accumulating all this data so you can understand from the buyer perspective the types of products that people want to buy. Even if it's a new product, it's got to fit into some category. You can be categorized somehow. And that gives you a leg up on trying to determine not just what the product is, but I'm presuming as well you have some price in mind, even if that price is not printed anywhere, right? Publicly. Sure, sure. I mean, we have a target margin on all products. And, and what we would do uh, is that we would always push. We never push for profit. I mean, not profit on the individual sale. And that's why you'll find us. It's very, very unlikely that you'll find anything that you find expensive if you end up actually winning the auction. Because we always push for volume. So if we buy something at 100 baht uh, and the market price is 500 baht, we will keep pushing the sales until we hit our target margin. Uh, and and our target, target margin can be anywhere from 10 to 30%, 35%. So if we make a really good, really good purchase, we would not sit back and be, wow, we're making 60% profit on this product. We'll be sit back and say, wow, we're selling 2,000 pieces a day. Right? Right. Let's buy more. Yeah, yeah let's buy and, more, and, right? Yeah. And, and by that way, we are kind of securing our own position in the market because we end up being so cheap that uh, no one else can actually compete with us on the price because we're importing ourselves from China. We have productions going on. We've, we've fairly, I'm not saying sure there's guys that are better than us, but we're fairly efficient in our whole uh, supply chain management. Right. I mean, that's got to be a good percentage of the business knowledge that you have. In other words... I'm betting, and I don't know this, right? But I'm betting that there's got to be a business for you saying, and I'm going to make this up, right? That like somebody's buying drills, you know, that electric drill, right? I don't even know if people use drills anymore, to be fair. It just shows you how old I am. And you're like, okay, fine. 
or screwdrivers. Let's cause just whatever. It doesn't matter. And you go, you know what? I can manufacture screwdrivers. I can white label them. I can put a Chilindo brand on it and I can just, let's see how those things sell. Cause the margins there have to be better too. Like at some point you can create your own brand too. We have, if you go to our site and you see the drilling machines that you've probably seen, uh, since you mentioned it, it's called graphics. That's our own brand and we're selling thousands a week of them. It's wow. a massive volume. I would not be surprised if we're the biggest seller of power tools in Thailand by now. Wow. So tell me this though, right? So the story sounds awesome, mm-hmm. but it probably wasn't always so awesome. Like you probably weren't always, <laughs> you probably weren't always the largest seller of power tools. I mean, that's an amazing thing. I don't know if I'm the largest seller. I'm just saying. No, but you I know what I mean though. But just to have, the, just to have it's... the balls to be able to say that you think you might be, that's amazing. And, and actually, you should say that with great pride. I don't mean that in a bad way at any level. <laughs> You should be very prideful about that because that's amazing. Just the fact that you think that is awesome, yeah. actually. And I mean that. That's a compliment at every level. Thank um, you. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're very welcome. No. But the question is, like, how do you get there, right? So tell me more about, like, <laughs> the early days. Because like, Chilindo, I don't know, but I'm presuming on day one it wasn't just, like, a rousing success. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> it was uh... – I think both. Uh, I think I've uh, almost given up more than once. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad. You yeah, did. I mean, uh, we launched in slow launch in I think end of December 2013. Uh, we had a very limited budget, so this goes to all the people that think you need a lot of funding. I think we had oh, what did we have? Forty, fifty thousand dollars in total to launch the website and buy products for our stock. And I would literally go around in Chinatown at night or Bobay Market or I would go at any market here in Bangkok and buy 10 pieces of this and 12 pieces of this and 20 pieces of this and one piece of that. And then back to the office and take pictures and make product descriptions and put them on the website. And and we launched with a lot of very cheap products, uh, actually mainly women's women's fashion items. Those were the easiest to get a hold of. And and at the time, I'd been in Thailand for less than half a year. I couldn't even count in Thai, or at least I, maybe I could count to 10. So it was, it was very tough actually doing all these things. But, and it was mostly, I found out that the best deals was like at 4 a.m. in the morning at the in Chinatown. That's when it's cheapest. Why? So to those who doesn't know, Chinatown actually changes three, four times a day. So if you ever go there in the daytime, you can go back in the evening and it's a whole new shops there. And then in the middle of the night, there's other shops standing in front of, the other shops. It's, I haven't been there for a while, but right. that's how we all started buying a lot of small quantities. And we launched in, yeah, launched at the end of December 13. From there on, we were looking for investors because we obviously didn't have enough money. No one wanted to invest because uh, they didn't like the business model. And uh, at the time, Groupon, uh, in Sogo, all deal sites was going uh, belly up. And whenever we talked to uh, VCs or they were all putting us in the same category and saying, this must be in this range and all those guys are losing money. So let's not touch it for anything in the world. We finally find someone that would put in a few hundred thousand dollars at very low valuation, especially uh, uh, if you look at the valuation today, but in, I think, March, April. And the money just, I think we got 200, 8 million baht and they were wow. just gone. Like in. <laughs> I think then we moved to a bigger warehouse. We hired a little bit more people and, and sales didn't really go up. And by July 14, it was almost all gone and sales were actually just flat or tending to go down. And 
And then, I don't know, a lot of things happened in July and August, and uh, we finally started to get the growth going. Uh, I think this I cannot fail again uh, hit me and, uh, and uh, worked even harder. And, uh, yeah, we started to started to grow around 50% abundant at the time. We were very proud. It was, in retrospect, a very small amounts, but I think you have to embrace everything. And, yeah, we kept growing. I think we've had only a few months since July 14 where we didn't grow. <laughs> What was, yeah. but what, what changed? Cause you don't seem so sure, but I'm pretty sure you do know. Like what changed? What was it? The product mix that changed? Was it like, how did you acquire clients back then? In other words, why would people come to the site? How did they know it existed? What kind of marketing we, were you doing? Yeah. How did that work? We only did Facebook marketing and we continue to do that. There was a lot of talks at the time to start doing all kinds of other things. And I think at the point at the time we were moving in different directions or at least discussing a lot going in different directions. And in August, I just said, let's, let's stop all these discussions. Let's stop talking about Google and offline marketing and all these things. It's, it's Facebook. That's it. If we can't make it work with Facebook marketing, we're not going to make it work at all. I'm not in, I'm not here to make a business that sells for a million baht a month and, uh, and try to make it stable. I mean, either we make it or we don't. Right. Uh, and we changed some strategies in, in, in how to do our marketing on, on Facebook. Um, it was obviously fairly small bodies at the time, but I think one of, yeah, it's, it's fair to say that what we were trying to do was all this hyper targeting that a lot of people is talking about. And what actually turned out to work was uh, the more simple approach and just let Facebook optimize your ads. Wow. And once you, once you figured that out, I like the fact that you just wouldn't give up on this business model. I'm sure plenty of people had ideas about different marketing channels. You see a lot of startups, you know, do this offline marketing where they put big billboards up. I don't think I've ever seen a Chilindo billboard, but, and I'm, nope. and, no, I wouldn't think so. And I said that on purpose because I don't think I have, yeah. and you don't know this about me or maybe you do, but I ride my Vespa all over the city. So I'm, I'm, I'm always outside and I'm always riding around and I'm always looking at billboards and I'm sometimes shocked actually at, I just can't imagine what it costs to put up one of those plan B billboards somewhere. I think it's not so much about the cost. So if we're into marketing, I mean, still the day to day and we're spending well above a million dollars a month on, uh, on marketing now. And we spend it all on Facebook. I think maybe a percent in a bad month goes somewhere else because someone wanted to try something out. We spend everything on Facebook. Our, we spend zero dollars on Google. We spend zero dollars everywhere else. And I think, I mean, the whole offline marketing discussion is, is a separate issue. I think it's it makes a lot of sense if everyone that passes by knows who you are. If you're trying to acquire customers, I think it's probably mostly for your own well-being to see that billboard. Uh, it's, it's, it's not really going to acquire that many customers, at least not for the cost. But the main thing here is focus. Because you don't know how many times my marketing department has come to me and said, Facebook doesn't work anymore. How many of my friends or colleagues have come to me, oh, Facebook is, have you heard, they're running out of inventory or CPM price is going up 50% or, and I'm always like, yeah, it's not true. It's excuses for moving away from Facebook. And Facebook is probably one of the toughest places to do marketing because they change all the time. And every time they change and every time our marketing stops working, and this happens on a two, three months basis that suddenly it's like everything is not working. Then it's just restart, right? There's nothing to discuss. There's nothing to discuss of 
moving budgets to Google or spending more time on offline marketing. This guys, you don't know how to do all these things. It's Facebook marketing. Start over, delete everything, and redo it before you go home, right? And, and it always turns out to work again. Right? And it all works. But humans, they want to move the. We all try to find reasons for things not working, right? And then we go in a different direction. Yeah, sorry. It's just so interesting to me how this has all grown and how this all worked. I mean, I like the idea of you being in Chinatown at 4 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and now you're spending a million dollars a month, in your words, on Facebook ads. Like something definitely changed. Something changed a lot. I mean, we went from being a very, very scrappy startup with – I think a few employees to write the Thai text and do the customer service. And right. as I said, I think forty, fifty thousand dollars and even our first funding was only around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and we actually haven't funded since then. Uh we've done some loans but no funding since then. Uh and today we're doing this year we're doing uh ninety five million dollars. So and it's around a thousand employees now. So yeah, a lot has happened. I mean it's went from running around in Chinatown to running around in China to now try to manage a lot of people doing uh, doing the work for you. It's uh, it's been a very quick ride. It's all been yeah. It's only three years ago we were about to give up. <laughs> yeah, and I like the fact that you didn't. What about expansion? <laughs> I really do. I'm, I mean, I'm so in love with what's happening in this business. If for no other reason than it's just persistence, right? And it comes out of I just know this thing is going to work. I've seen it work before. And there's a human condition that says that this is the way people like to buy things. You notice I didn't say shop, right? Because shopping is different mm -hmm. than buying. Yeah. Um, and what does that mean for expansion? Like, do you run businesses outside of Thailand? I'm, I'm looking at the website and I can see that I can go to multiple places in multiple languages and stuff. So what does that mean for regional or even global expansion? Uh, we launched in uh, last year. We tried to launch international cross-border shipping has never really worked out for us. We, we're still doing it a little bit. Uh, we do, but it's very, very small volume and, and not by cylinder size by any means, very small volume to Australia and Norway and a few other countries. Uh, we might actually close it down. At least it's, it's not profitable. Uh, but in April, we launched uh, Malaysia, where we have um, call center, uh, customer support, local buying, uh, everything in KL, we have a big warehouse outside KL. So in, in Malaysia, we're doing local fulfillment for six months now, seven months now. Uh, and it's actually going quite well. Uh, we had a very good uh, start over there and uh, it's, it's running pretty decent. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not Thailand size yet, but it's, it's, it's getting there. I think another 12, 12 months, it should be up there. Uh, and we launched, uh, Vietnam, uh, what is that, a month ago, one and a half months ago? Uh, we launched in Vietnam with similar, with uh, a fairly big office in uh, Ho Chi Minh City where we have customer support and, yeah, same same, same deal, some buyers and some local local people to do pictures and so on. And then uh, a warehouse outside Ho Chi Minh doing all fulfillment. And Vietnam has been crazy. They're doing, on the first day, we did 8,500 orders in uh, Vietnam. Was that surprising to you? Like, was that above your expectations? I mean, I'm the kind of guy, I, I don't set very high expectations. So, <laughs> no, I mean, no, it's, it's fair, just, right? I, mean, I, I hate disappointing, right? So when we launched, when we launched Malaysia, we had no clue whether this was going to work or not. I mean, right. we only had international shipping to look at and that failed miserably, right? right. So we were, we were launching in a shared office. <laughs> we had rented a shared office so we could register the company. We had actually it. rented a, 
three and a half thousand square meter warehouse, so we could at least stuff some products. But and that's a fairly big warehouse by all means. Yeah. But, uh, in Thailand, we have twenty thousand, so so to that extent, it's fairly small. And the first day, we did like I think two thousand, two and a half thousand orders, and we just had to hire a lot of customer service and. I think we had been live for 24 hours when I was running around looking for a new office because we just couldn't squeeze people in. And it was a, yeah, it was, it was fun, right? So when we launched Vietnam, you should think we become smarter, but we kind of went on with the same approach. Uh, <laughs> we said, yeah, okay, let's rent a bigger office this time and let's rent a little bit bigger warehouse, but let's not hire too much staff before we actually know if anyone wants to buy something. Right. Uh, and again, because we're not that heavy funded, so we have to be scrappy, right? I mean, yeah. We look at, okay, the rent for this, the rent for that, the cash flow and building the inventory. Okay, we can survive that, but we cannot have 100 or 200 people just walking around doing nothing. Uh, so we started out with a very limited amount of employees. And uh, let's not hope any Vietnamese governments is listening, but we had to fly in people from Thailand to pack boxes. And I think we hired, we have 180 employees in Vietnam now. They hired, they managed to hire 180 people in six weeks. That's so, amazing. So it's been, uh, it's, uh, I think it's normally, I'll say, what we do really good is we're very good at reacting and doing crazy, almost impossible things. Right? So it's fun. It's fun. It's also funnier that way. I mean, imagine you'd hired 180 people and you would only have only, I say that, 4,000 orders a day or 3,000 orders a day. <laughs> and everyone would just be standing around and have nothing to do. It's, it's, it's just so, so depressing. Right? I mean, that's, that's what I hate most about planning for something big and then, you actually do something amazing, but you just miss shot by a little bit, and now everyone is depressed, right? It's about having small successes all the time. I think that's the key. But isn't that true? Like, that's true across the board, right? And isn't that what you're saying about how shopping, and I don't like that word anymore, but how buying works, right? In other mm -hmm. words, if it's, it's aspirational, right? If I can, if I think that I have a, any possibility of paying 10 baht for something, I'll put the bid in. And once yeah. I've committed to it, well, now I want that thing. Like the, once I yes. make that bid, I'm not just going to give up. Go ten baht. That's my limit. I'm getting out. I'm never going to look at this again. Twelve is fine. Twenty is okay. <laughs> I may go to two fifty. I don't know. But it's the same thing with staffing, right? They're sitting around going, oh, four thousand orders only, and then it's six thousand, then it's twenty thousand yeah. orders, and they're like, oh god, there's nothing going on here. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's the same mentality, and maybe it just permeates the whole company where they think it's never enough. And that's great for growth. That's also great for staff morale because everybody has that same feeling of like, we only did 50,000 orders today kind of thing, and it's still huge. <laughs> it's for sure. I mean, I, I think the worst thing you can do is, is hire a lot of people because you expect something great to happen. Because right. At least in my experience, then when the great thing happens, everyone has gotten used to go home at three o'clock and uh, they're lazy. <laughs> exactly. And so you need to, you need to let everyone go and hire new people again when, right. when, when you actually hit the success, right? Because it's, it's just, it just creates the wrong mentality. And uh, I think that's, that's, that's a key in our staffing that we, we try to make sure that, that everyone has something to do. And actually, this is a funny thing. We don't have budgets in TMD. So that's a different what? way. We don't have any budgets. So we don't have any sales forecast for next month. Might have ah. sent something to investors, but yeah, yeah, yeah. what we do is, but what we, what what we do internally is that we have a daily sales record for every day of the week for every country, and we're always trying to beat that one. So we actually have, I mean, so for a country like Thailand, we actually have seven sales records: one for a Monday, one for a Tuesday, and so on. So actually, we beat records a lot uh, compared to for a long time. We just had higher sales, and then we were trying to beat it, and then. 
once you, have, you suddenly have a very good day and it just became impossible to beat it. This is depressing. Now it's been two months without beating any records, right? right. Just because we had that one great day. And then we changed it to have a record for every day of the week. And it actually changed a lot because now you beat records all the time. And That's it's so just, awesome. It just, it just makes you feel better. It even makes me more happy. Even if it's selling 20,000 baht in Norway and the previous records was 10,000 baht, right? Just the fact that you're breaking a record, just the fact that you're going forward. And, and, and that's a part of my philosophy as well. As I always say, I mean, it doesn't matter how much we grow, as long as we're growing every month. It can only be amazing right? because whether it's 1% or 30%, just keep growing, right? And, and sometimes when we've just nailed it in marketing, we have had you know, crazy growth, growth rides. I mean, I think end of last year, we grew 220% over three months, and that was from a fairly high number already, right? So that was just insane. And that's why you're sitting there and say, you need to hire 50 people on Monday and 50 people next Monday and just keep doing that until I say stop, right? right. It's, uh, <laughs> it's fun. Well, it sounds like it's a lot more fun than being in Chinatown at 4 o'clock in the morning trying to figure so out which, sure. it's, which it's, 10 it's pairs different. of slippers to buy, right? It's different, but it's, it's much more fun, it's right? Different. It's different. It's different aspects, and I think it's uh, – that's the fun thing about building a company. If anyone had asked me if I could uh, manage a 1,000 people three years ago, I'd probably said I have no clue. And I'm pretty sure a lot of those 1,000 people would say the same now. <laughs> them, like, that hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> but at least, uh, at least we're learning every day, right? And uh, it's 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 getting better all the time. But, so uh, does this, but it's fun. Does this get global? You think? I think the auction model itself works globally, and I think uh, we are going to roll it out. I don't believe in. Uh, I'm actually probably one of the few people saying this. I don't believe much in cross border shipping, at least not for the items that we're selling. Uh, so. Our global rollout plan is local warehouse, local fulfillment, uh, simply to keep costs down uh, and be able to be fast and efficient without applying a lot of cost. Uh, so it will obviously take some time, but 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 the way we have launched the last two countries, it, it went very easy. So I think later on with some, uh, some more cash available, um, we'll for sure be able to launch uh, globally at some point. Um, but obviously there's... There's a lot of work before we can we can go all all over the world, right? But we'll take a country at a time. We've done two countries this year. I'm sure if we can uh, manage to get it all together, we can do even more countries next year. But do you? It's a good question, though, right? And you you've said a couple of times, you know, if we can raise more money. But you also said that you've never raised money except for maybe borrowing a little bit since that two hundred fifty thousand approximate raise that you did. <laughs> A few years ago, like, do you need to raise more money? And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. I'm just curious. It just sounds like if you're doing, again, your number, but $95 million a year in turnover, just in, that's just in Thailand. And if you feel like you can get Malaysia up to there, you're running a really big business. Do you really want to fund, do you think, or do you just want to run off a of cash flow? And you don't have to answer. I'm just really curious. No, no, I'm, I'm happy to answer. I'm happy to answer. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough question. I mean, because we spent three years trying to build a business that was actually a real business. Obviously, yeah. we lost a lot of money in the beginning. And now it's actually, you can say, a real business because we're not running on, on, on funding. We're actually making profit every month. I think right. this is 15, 16 months straight now with one miss. Um, it's not big money we're making. It's, 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 but we're above the zero line, right? Um, I think if we really want global expansion and we want that, 
we need we need to raise money because otherwise it will take too long. Because even though you're making money, uh, you can say without growth, three hundred percent a year, even more, you have to make a lot of money to finance that yourself. Right? So, so yeah, we'll probably raise money uh, when the time is right and the offer is right. Fair enough. Well, look, this has been super um, informative for me. And hopefully it's been fun for you. I mean, I've had, this it's is probably, the, this is probably the most fun conversation I've had all day. <laughs> and I've had some good ones actually, to be fair. But I don't think I've laughed this much. Um, good. Yeah. And, and hopefully, we can keep going about this for hours. It's, we can, uh, it's but that's the other thing. Too, but that's the other thing too is I almost feel like letting you go now and following up with you in like three or four months just to find out how Malaysia, Vietnam and other things are going. And I also like this concept where, you know, there's this whole idea for e-commerce that you build up a gigantic business in one place and then you use that as the base. So you, instead of having a 20,000 square foot warehouse, you have a 40,000 square foot warehouse and you do cross-border shipping. But what you're saying is that you like it better to do local. And I actually think that's a better idea too because you get local buyers, you get local customer service, you get local warehouse. It means delivery is easier, it's faster, it's more efficient. It just sounds like an interesting model to me and it doesn't seem like what most people are doing either. E- either. And I think that's pretty much par for the course for the way you've run this business, doing a whole bunch of stuff that nobody else is doing, right? I think uh, there is uh, several people have said that uh, what uh, most other e-commerce companies do, we tend to do everything opposite. And uh, at works. least at least we do it our way, right? I'm yeah. not sure we're always opposite, but we do it our way. And I think we never have meetings here where we discuss how is our competitor doing things. We're very... We're very egocentric in that way. We, we hardly ever look at whatever other people are doing. We just look at ourselves and see what we can improve. And, uh, yeah, and that's, that's how we do it. I think it's, uh, it's fun and I uh, have a very good team around me. Uh, it sounds like and, it. And I would love to catch up in three more, four months to see uh, where we're at then. We'll do it. Look, I want to say thank you. I want to stop now because I think we've taken up enough of your time. You must be really busy. But I really want to say thank you, Casper um, Bo Jensen, CEO, founder of Chilindo. This has really been a fabulous conversation. Cool. Thank you. Have a good day. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.